you get into a hot tub, right? You get that that warm flushing feeling, you know, like all the blood like rushes to the top of your skin. That's the same feeling it is when you're paralyzed. Welcome to Humans of SaaS. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and on this show, I talk to entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders from the tech industry who each have a unique and compelling story to share. Jack Ryan is the partner manager for Saster, the largest community for founders, executives, and entrepreneurs. In 2018, Jack suffered a broken neck and numerous strokes, which led to his paralysis and near death, which through sheer grit and determination, he was able to overcome to the point where he climbed Mount Whitney, the tallest summit in the continental US. He is an incredibly intelligent and inspiring person, and it was an absolute honor to have him on the show. So I want to start off with pre-2018, asking you a bit about what that was like for you, because obviously you had this major event happen in 2018 that we're definitely going to dig into. But I want to get sort of a picture of what your life was like before that. What were you doing? Oh, man. So I was in uh, college at the time. I'm 26 currently. 2018, I was... Basically, I was in my final semester of school at San Diego State. Um, I was studying sustainability with an emphasis in surf tourism, which is like the most cool. San Diego thing you could ever do. <laughs> Seriously. Um, and I grew I grew up surfing uh, up and down the coast of California. I, I traveled the world through college surfing and surf guiding and working for uh, surf tourism operations in Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And so that was kind of like my life prior to 2018 it was just it was all centered around you know that that beach lifestyle that surf lifestyle of like travel the world go surf go spearfish free dive i was very i was very fortunate growing up to have those experiences no doubt so that's incredible yeah (laughs) that's right you're just casually yeah spearfishing and free diving getting getting pearls off the bottom of the ocean i assume yeah, I mean, it was, uh, we grew up lobster diving off the coast of San Diego. So you literally go out at like 10 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night, 1 a.m., whatever. And uh, you go dive into caves looking for lobster and then you grab them with your hands. It's like the funnest thing ever. That is not something I can relate to at all growing up <laughs> in Canada, but it sounds freaking amazing. That's very, very cool. Did you think you were going to go, like, were you going to surf professionally? Were you going to, like, stay in surf tourism? Like, were you thinking about, where you wanted to take that stuff? I was gonna do surf guiding, like be a guide at various like tourism operations and a surf professional surf coach. So I taught surf for God, like five, six years from the time I was a teenager. I broke it down into systems and like how, like each, each system has a step and this is how you get to your feet. This is how you ride a wave. Yeah, that was kind of the trend I was going down towards, but at the time in 2018, I was also in luxury real estate. And so I got into that after living in Costa Rica uh, in 2017 and being like, well, I can't buy land internationally or domestically for an operation if I don't know how real estate works. So I was kind of pairing the the surf guiding, the surf coaching. And then I was also in luxury real estate at the time in Northern San Diego, uh, running digital marketing campaigns handling the day-to-day admin work. And uh, I actually got my license as well before I graduated college. So I had, uh, I had my Damn. my feet dipped in a, in a lot of ponds, so to speak. Literally and, and figuratively, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. That is super cool. A random question, but how long could you hold your breath for when you were doing that free diving? This is probably one of the best investments I ever made in my like young life. I took a performance free diving course back when I was a junior in high school, because we grew up sailing to Catalina to go dive. We always wanted to know how to hold our breath longer. So on a standard like dive, like down to like 50, 60 feet, um, with just, that's just so one, deep. yeah, with only one breath, I could go for about a minute, like kicking down, hanging out on the bottom, looking for fish. There's what's called static breath holds, right? And so that's where you kind of just lay in a pool motionless and don't move. And uh, I believe, when I did it at the course, I hit three minutes with no Jesus. air. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, I say it's one of the best investments I ever made because it taught me one, how to breathe properly. And it, it led me into this long path that I continue to go down of like meditation and whatnot and, and using breath to focus. Or I, if we sat down in person, Ben, I could be like, Hey, I can get you to hold your breath with with it for two minutes minimum within about 15 minutes of teaching. I'm going to have to hire you for that at some point. I'm very, <laughs> that's a very cool skill. Yeah. And 
Oh man, I, that makes me feel pathetic. From my uh, forty feet, I went I in full scuba gear. Scuba gear. I was forty feet down, you know, for like a thing in Mexico a few years ago. That was so I can't even imagine being fifty, sixty feet down with no equipment on one breath and not having a heart attack. From how the hell am I going to get back to the surface? I mean, we freed up in Hawaii too, and the water's so clear there, and so you're actually deeper than what you think you are when the water's that clear, and so like. I remember we dove somewhere in college off of Oahu and I was like, there's a pipeline and it looks like it's 40 feet away, but it's probably 80 feet deep, you know? Oh my God. So it's, it's a very, it's a deep practice in meditation. And, um, when you understand what your body does, when it reacts from lack of oxygen, it's like, oh, I can go way longer than what my body's actually telling me. So that is crazy, but yeah. super cool. And you were doing jujitsu as well. Yeah, so um, I grew up like fighting and in combat sports and grappling and stuff. So I started with like karate and like taekwondo as a young kid. Was a little too aggressive and often ended up in like <laughs> fist fights and sparring. <laughs> of course, as one does. Uh, as one one tends to do. Uh, and uh, that transitioned into wrestling in high school. And then um, around 2015, when I was about a freshman or sophomore in in college. I'd been exposed to jujitsu like late high school and I thought it was definitely something I wanted to pursue, but uh, I really dove into it in 2015 and then pursued it full time around 2017, like on the competition scene in uh, California. So, wow. All right. And that, I mean, led to, you know, what happened in, in 2018. So walk us through that. Like what, what was it that, that happened that day at this comp? Was it at a competition? No. So it was, um, the way I, I kind of tell the stories, it was like just a day like any other, right? So, you know, I was living in Del Mar, California at the time and woke up, uh, went on my morning surf check up the 101, kind of just looked at it and I was like, ah, oh, the surf's not that great today. Go to my coffee spot, do my, my daily my daily writing, my daily notes, um, kind of analyze what I had to do from a schoolwork and studying perspective because I was three weeks away from finals at San Diego State. And then... Uh, I had to look at what I had on the the marketing campaigns I had running on Facebook and stuff for my real estate gig. So after looking at both of those, I was like, ah, oh, like it's a pretty wide open day. I think I'm going to go to uh, the noon jujitsu class. And long story short, we were about 40 minutes in and we start to go into sparring rounds. And at the time I had been competing, you know, in comps up and down the coast and internationally, like every other few weeks. I kept getting paired up with higher belts in the class because my intensity and, and speed and all that was much faster than the average like white belt, so to speak. And I kept getting paired up with the black belt instructor. And at around 12:49 p.m., I was in a like protective position. Well, basically, what he did was he put his knee into the back of my neck, which is one an illegal move, and then torqued me over, which then cracked oh, my neck Jesus or broke Christ. my neck at uh, C4 and C5. So Oof. that subsequently paralyzed me from the neck down, gave me what's called an incomplete spinal cord injury. The way I describe it to everyone is you get into a hot tub, right? You get that, that warm flushing feeling, you know, like all the blood yeah. like rushes to the top of your skin. That's the same feeling it is when you're paralyzed. And so, but then nothing moves, right? So <laughs> cue call 911, like getting carted out, stabilized, all that. About 12 hours after the accident, I had, on top of being paralyzed, I had internal bleeding at the vertebral artery, one of the two main arteries that go to your brain. And uh, I suffered multiple strokes around 1 a.m. on November 30th. And you know, that's when things got pretty serious as if it wasn't already serious enough. Yeah, I was gonna say like, it was already pretty damn serious. That's insane like yeah. what do you still have a very clear memory of all of that um i have a pretty clear memory of everything leading up to the strokes and then things get blurry and then like the icu stay is a series of like ups and downs and consciousness and unconsciousness and like saying things that i don't remember um as one tends to do on drugs in the icu you know right but uh yeah i was in the icu for about just under two and a half weeks. And uh, when you have a, a spinal cord injury in your cervical column, right? At like C4, um, if you put your hand on your neck, like kind of right towards the middle and move like one inch up, that's where your C4 vertebrae is. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the last vertebrae 
you would want to break if you were to have a spinal cord <laughs> if injury. If you had to pick one? If you had to pick one, because once it goes above C4, it's basically like if it's a complete injury, you're pretty much on a puff tube and like and or dead. Um, a puff right. tube mean, meaning you use your mouth to like signal what you need. C4 basically means every nerve from the deltoids down is impacted and or paralyzed. So had my injury been what's called a complete spinal cord injury, I would have lost everything from my deltoids down. That means my arms, my my biceps, my hands, chest, every, everything below that level um, of deltoids, completely gone. So I thank my, my lucky stars that I was fortunate enough to have the injury be incomplete. So the injury being incomplete means um, as you know, because we met in person over in Saster, at Saster Annual, it means the neurological signals from the brain can bypass the damage and bruising on the spinal cord. And so the nerves were intact, but the bones were broken. No, or the bones like were that. broken and the nerves were also damaged. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is it's crazy to hear because I mean, Obviously, I knew none of this, and I just like met you at Saster, and you were walking around the conference, <laughs> right? And, uh, and you know, you have you have, you have the polls for for support, but yeah. you know, you're you're walking like perfectly fine, and so to then learn your story after, I was like, holy shit, it's insane! Yeah. Like, it's absolutely insane, and it's I mean, obviously, we'll we'll dig into this, but it is miraculous what you have been able to do. I mean, miraculous, but like credit to you. I mean, I know it's been an incredibly hard journey and so much hard work. And I can only imagine what it's been like to you, for you to like get from that point where, I mean, it sounds like you literally thought you were going to die when you were in the hospital. Oh, they, they thought I was going to die. So when I, when I had the strokes, the way the story goes, and I, I know you said you watched the film, surgeon comes in, mom's in the waiting room, surgeon goes, your son's had multiple strokes. They're basically the worst type of strokes. We got to go operate and save your son's life. <laughs> My parents actually, that first few days, were making uh, end-of-life plans, and oh, wow. um, I was actually supposed to be offered assisted suicide had, you know, the outcome been different post-operation. I tell everyone this, I, I for sure would have taken it. I for sure would have just chosen death over living in a completely paralyzed body and, and probably potential brain damage, so. Wow. That is i'm so glad that you're that you know came through that and i mean <laughs> well, tell me a bit about what that recovery was like because you said okay two and a half weeks in icu but icu is when you're like they're worried they're not sure that you're going to make it like that's when you're just sort of pulling through and you're trying they're trying to get you a state where you're stable enough to go into you know the, the main hospital and recovery and like all that sort of thing so i can only imagine what the what the pt the physiotherapy and what the processes were like after that like tell me about sort of that recovery from both a physical and a mental perspective. Yeah, yeah. So from the physical perspective, you know, I got my first flicker of movement in the ICU after about a week in my big left toe. And as I describe it to everyone, again, like when you're paralyzed from the neck down and you have an incomplete spinal cord injury, you're basically in a ice block, right? And right. you have no idea how that ice block is going to dethaw, and some of that ice block may never dethaw. What happened was after about two and a half weeks in the ICU, they recognized that I was stable enough in terms of my the the medical procedures they had done um, on my neck. Right, they they had fused my neck from C4 to C6 with a, a metal cage. I had was on supplemental oxygen. I had a tra uh, trach, right? So I had mm -hmm. a hole in my neck with oxygen being forced in due to my lungs essentially being partially paralyzed as well. And you screws in your in your head, didn't you, as well, to keep you st like stable or something like that? Or yeah. was that before? That was before. So that was a, right initially when the accident happened. So it's a, a term called traction. And so they drill into the side of your head while you're conscious with these two big screws. <laughs> they don't you have give to you pain. be conscious for it. You have to be conscious for it because they have you have to tell them when you start to feel pain. Oh come on. <laughs> yeah. So that you can't have painkillers or anything. Oh, until until you start to experience pain. And so in that initial phase of getting my head drilled into, and then like, it's basically to relieve pressure off the spinal column um, right. and off the spinal cord. When they do that, they stack weights like 
two, four, six, eight. Eventually, they got to about 27 to 29 pounds, uh, pulling my head upward. And that's when I saw pain for the first time. <laughs> it looked like, right. you know, you see it in the cartoons and stuff, but it really did look like pink flowers everywhere. And like, I felt my consciousness kind of start to wane. And I remember turning to the nurse and going, uh, I see pain. Um, <laughs> Am I supposed help- to see it or feel it? Yeah, I was like, can you help me out? He goes, say no more. And he takes some lidocaine needles and just basically stabs them into my head like four or five times. So it went yeah. numb. Yeah, that was the traction portion. But once they ensured that I was stabilized enough to make it to another hospital, my parents had been evaluating where to get me. So there's several spinal cord injury like rehab facilities across the U.S. There's um, Santa Clara, there's UCLA, there's the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, there's a place in Chicago, and then there's a spot called Craig Hospital. So we were evaluating all of them. And, you know, I don't really believe in coincidences. I think things just happen happen for a reason. They just happen. Yeah. yeah, they just happen. What was crazy was I was on a week number two, and a man by the name of Alex Shaner limps into my room on his one year anniversary after hearing about my story from the medical staff that was caring for me and goes, hey, I was your son one year ago. My injury's at C6. You need to get this kid to Craig Hospital in Denver, Colorado. My parents like, oh, okay. Um, We'll start doing a research. Two days later, a rep flew out from Craig Hospital. Uh, Immediately, I had it in my head. I was like, I'm sold. Like to the point of, you know, we're, we talk about business and sales and stuff. They sold me so well. And I was just like, <laughs> get me to Denver ASAP. And that was a, yeah. that was a whole string of events. I won't dive too much into it, but at one point the night before, like five hours before I was supposed to take off the morning of the plane broke down and they only have two like entry dates at Craig. It's like Thursday and Mondays. And I, I knew in my head, the longer I'm not moving, the f- worse off I'm going to be long-term. So like movement is medicine. Movement means healing, right? And so the plane broke down like Wednesday at like 1 a.m. My mom's frantically trying to call private jet nursing companies. And then by some hand of God or whatever you believe in, managed to get a private medical jet at 6 a.m. that morning. And I flew out to Craig Hospital on Thursday at about 9 a.m. So Damn. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I, yeah. Okay. So you, yeah. so you, so you get to Craig, you get to Craig hospital. Yeah. So that's, and then, so going into the rehab portion, obviously you, as you come out of the ICU, you're coming off of painkillers. So your, your body's processing, you know, all the oxycodone and all the Valium and yeah. coming off of, the opioid epidemic is an epidemic for a reason in the U S right. It's right. absolutely, absolutely hellacious to detox. Right. You would have been, this would have happened. I mean, yeah, 2018 and especially with an, an injury that severe, they would have been giving you some, some heavy opioids. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I basically went cold Turkey off of that. Right. I lost everything at, at 23. I, I had lost all control of my bowels, all control of my bladder, all control of my entire body. Um, and so I got to Craig hospital and it's a, three month intensive rehab program and they determine when you get in how long you're going to be there. So based off my prognosis, they were thinking about anywhere from two months to three months, but they couldn't really tell because I was worst case scenario. Right. <laughs> Ended up getting the full three months, but the daily minutia of you know my rehab was I would wake up at 7, 8 a.m., you know, they would do all the necessary bed cleaning, you know, catheter cleaning, uh, dressing for me, because obviously I can't dress myself. And then they would hoist you into your electric wheelchair and then you go off to rehab. And it, it was people, people look at my recovery. My recovery is very, very uncommon based off of my injury and the addition of the strokes. It's right. like kind of like a point something zero one percent type of situation well i can only imagine that the amount of like you going into it no one could have have been better prepared for an injury like that i mean like you were probably so in tune with your body having spent your whole life surfing and doing breathing and diving and you were probably incredibly fit and incredibly just aware of you know all of your body and how it's all working and aligned and you know what i mean like yeah i'm sure that played a big role in your recovery your physical recovery 
for sure. You know, I'd already gone to years of PT from other like smaller injuries. Um, it was funny. I had a girl who I dated in 2018 come into the hospital room and she goes, she goes, I don't know how you're dealing with what you're dealing with. And she's like bawling to me. And I'm like, I was cut out for this. Like I've already done, I've already done all the physical work. I've already done all the, the, the meditation, all the journaling. I already have all the coping mechanisms necessary. I was like, why not me? I like, I, I'd rather have it happen to me than, than somebody else. Right. Cause I don't think anyone else in my life would be able to handle a situation like this as good as I am right now. I can appreciate sort of where, where you've gotten to now. And I, you know, I've met people that have gone through traumatic episodes, you know, incidents like that. And it, generally it takes them a long time to sort of get to where you are but it sounds like you were sort of like that right off the bat you were like i'm gonna beat this like i can get i can recover you know like you just said you know i i've been preparing for this like if you know why not me and i yeah. mean was there any moment where you were sort of like having that freak out or was it sort of like once you had gone through that time in the icu you were you know you had this mindset I, I made a decision the day the accident happened that I was going to fight like hell regardless of the outcome. And uh, I was that rock for, you know, my family and so many other people. And granted, like, you know, you can't always be the rock. And I had my fair share of absolutely horrific breakdowns, right? Yeah. But to that end, you're presented with situations in your life and you choose how those situations will define your outcomes going forward, you know, granted, I've had a relatively favorable outcome, but regardless, we have so many other smaller micro events in our life where, you know, we can either trend in towards a positive light or we can trend towards a negative light. And it's, it's truly on you to, to, to pick where that trend line goes. I love that. I mean, you've talked about that in some of the things you you've written about. Um, you know, I think that that ties in like with some of your, the, the messages that you put out there around your outlooks on life. You, talked about, you know, I mean, you had your article you put out in May about, you know, no one caring about your trauma and especially yeah. about ownership of your tra pain, your trauma, your healing. Oh, wow. You, you went, you went deep. You went to my website. That's a I first. Do, I do oh. my research. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'm stoked you went there. No, it, I mean, it was great. And I mean, the more I learned about your story, the more I wanted to hear your thoughts. And, and yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that. Like what made you want to get that message out in particular around you know, no one caring about your trauma and this need to take ownership. I, I actually wrote this on uh, Instagram last night. It was more so about trigger warnings, but we won't go down that topic just yet. But to the point of like, no one cares about your trauma. What happened was the accident happened, right? And p everyone in my collective like world is super concerned, calling, checking in, emailing, doing whatever they can to see I'm that I'm okay, right? And then once it was kind of determined that I was going to survive, you know, people, people move on with their lives and this they're is, like, all right, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's no, that's not a personal thing. It's just like, you know, they check in, they want to make sure things are good and then they go on with your life. And that's something a lot of people with traumatic events that occur, life-changing events that occur to them struggle with is like, you know, I'm okay. I survived why is nobody giving me any more attention and support now, right? And so when I say no one cares about your trauma and like take ownership of it, it's on you to determine your outcome. It's on you to determine how that trauma defines you and defines your legacy. I would just hope that by taking ownership of it, whether it's you or you know another individual out there, you're able to own it and go create something amazing, go create something great from that tragic outcome right we didn't get to choose the tragic outcome but we do, or the tragic event that occurs to us but we do get to choose how we define our legacy and what we do with that moving forward so you know it's people move on with their lives and it, it's shitty but that's just human nature and human suffering is a collective I, I say this to everyone trauma is all relative the greatest pain you're going through in this current moment is the greatest pain you're going through. And I can't relate to that because maybe I haven't dealt with that situation. So we can't place my trauma or by proxy your trauma on a pedestal. It's all relative and it's all equal. And therefore it's on you to go create what you can from that trauma or from those those situations. Yeah, I mean, we, we choose how we things happen and then we choose how we respond to those situations and we choose our of reactions course. and 
you know, emotions come up naturally, right? Like you're angry, you're sad, you're, you know, all these sorts of things. But right. once that processes or recognizing that, you know, you're, this is processing and, and you mentioned meditation before. I mean, that's sort of that, that practice of, of slowing that down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's up to you how to, how you respond. And I think, I mean, I do think that certain people have an easier time with that. Like I, I was born an optimist. Like I'm, I'm very, I feel like you were as well. Like I, I'm, I'm very, like, it's easy for me to go to that place. And when I'm frustrated, I can calm myself down and choose how I respond. But I yeah. definitely have people in my life who do have, whether it's a dopamine or serotonin deficiency or, you know, other circumstances where it's much more difficult for them to have that sort of response than it is for me. But I still think uh -huh. it's equally as important. So it's just more of a practice. But I think it's something that every right. human can do. It's just about practicing yeah. it. And I think you're the epitome of that example of look how horribly <laughs> shitty something can happen to someone, you know, and then you're still able to have this response. Right, right. And everyone does process, everyone processes in a different way and everyone processes at a different speed. I'm not faulting anyone that processes something differently than I do, right? And I, I totally understand the, the part you brought up about the serotonin and the dopamine and all that. You're totally right on that. I'm just saying, however long it takes you to process the situation, one, go at your own speed. But my, I would hope that you own it and go create something great out of it yeah. long term. Today's show is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. Catalyst gives you unmatched customizability, a seamless bi-directional Salesforce integration that takes less than five minutes to set up, and a world-class customer success team that'll be by your side every step of the way. Let's be honest, whatever you're currently using might be good enough, but is good enough really what you're aiming for? Take your CS team to the next level by switching to Catalyst today. To learn more, visit catalyst.io. And if you aren't looking for a CS platform right now, you should subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn anyways. I make daily memes, we host all sorts of events, and we love to give away our swag, which has been called the comfiest swag in the industry. Again, check out catalyst.io to learn more. I want to ask you about the Mount Whitney hike as well, because not only did you, you know, recover and gain the use of, of all of your limbs and you're, yeah. you know, fully walking and all that, you were like, I want to hike the tallest mountain now in the lower 48. Um, why is my main question. I'd be like, if I were me, I'd probably be like lying on the couch. I'd be like, okay, this happened to me. People bring me junk food and I'm going to watch Netflix for a while. Yeah, because I'm a crazy motherfucker, Ben. That's Apparently, that's what uh, I'm getting. <laughs> no, I am a little. I mean, I think you got to be a little crazy to do the things I do. My my rule of thumb is, when you give your word to something, whether you say it publicly or to yourself or to individuals in your life, and you say, "I'm gonna go do this thing," at the end of the day, when you scrape all the money away, all the possessions away, all of that, all you have is your word. Right. Mm -hmm. So with that, prior to my accident, about a month prior, I went on a whim. I said, I'm going to go summit the tallest mountain in Southern California. And I did it. And I, it was fun. And it was my first time above like 10,000 feet hiking. And I, I remember I put an Instagram post out and I going like, well, you know, that was not too bad. <laughs> the next logical step is to go do Mount Whitney come 20, uh, 2019. Uh, fast forward, obviously life throws you massive curveballs and you don't get to choose what happens sometimes. But with that, the idea came back to me around February of 2019. I was just barely standing up, just take, taking like my first steps in the rehab facility at Craig. And I was like, I got in my mind, I was like, you know, maybe it won't happen this year or maybe in the year, it may not happen for five years, but I'm going to go, I want to go some at Mount Whitney. And I think this is possible at least in the next, you know, this is possible in time. Right. Yeah. And because I gave my, I gave that word to myself and I guess the collective universe and social media that I was going to go do it. So I then kind of then became hyper obsessed on, on summoning this mountain. And uh, it kind of dawned on me on the back half of 2019 when I was starting to look at moving away from home and moving to Denver that, this would be a feasible outlet. So I basically started telling everyone, I was like, I'm gonna go summit, I'm gonna be the first individual with a spinal cord injury and with quadriplegia to go uh, go summit Mount Whitney in, in 2020. And that kicked off a 
massive series of events and failures and were, successes. Were people, were people like, yeah, sure you will. Or were, did they, did they believe that you would? You, I mean, we're both in startups, right? Whenever somebody, you know, I'm sure founders often come up with these crazy ideas and then like people hear them are like, yeah, yeah. Good luck guy. Yeah. Like, good luck girl. <laughs> like whoever. I like that idea. That's really cute. Fuck you. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's usually how any entrepreneurial journey kind of goes, it seems. And there was the same response from my, I got the same response from my parents. I go, I remember I was standing in the kitchen and like, and I go, I tell my dad and Deb, my stepmom, I go, uh, you know, I think I go some of this mountain. They look at me, they're like, um, you need to learn how to cook <laughs> breakfast first. Uh, and I was like, okay, but, uh, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do this next year. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> we love you, but, um, let's, let's put some sanity into you and like, maybe not do that. And I was like, ah, I, I've always been pretty, uh, confrontational and standoffish. <laughs> and I go, love you guys. Fuck you. I'm going to figure this out. Right. Um, yeah. and that's kind of how it all kicked off. Well, I mean, you completely earned the, I told you so that I'm sure you were able to, to give after. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, is there anything better than saying to somebody in a very sweet and polite way? <laughs> Someone hey, you love. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, I love you to death, but we did it. And they go, oh, shit, you did. And I I remember <laughs> when I was in the, the rehab facility at Craig, I, I told everyone in my, on my medical team, I was like, hey, I'm going to walk out of here in 90 days. And I walked out. I walked across the bridge to Independence, which is like the big like bridge in the hospital on day, like it had to have been like 89 or something, right? Nice independently and my dad you know i'd always tell i'd always come up with these crazy ideas and places i wanted to go as a kid and i'd be like hey dad like i'm gonna go do this thing You're like good luck and like right before my accident it was hey dad i'm gonna get into real estate i'm gonna make a boatload of money and then i'm gonna go buy some place a property down in central america and he goes what why did we just put you through college so you could just do <laughs> real estate and i go well, we got to the end of the year, like end of 2018, even after the injury. And my dad goes, looks at my tax return. He's like, wow, that was the most money you've ever made in your life. <laughs> um, I'm glad you went into, you, I'm glad you proved me wrong, basically. Yeah. Um, and then when I walked across that bridge, my dad, you know, we were kind of reflecting as I moved into outpatient in, in, April, or in March of 2019. And my dad's like, I will never say no to you again. And I will always encourage you to go do these crazy things because you've proven me wrong every single time. And you're like, no, keep keep saying these negative things so that I'm motivated to prove you wrong. I <laughs> uh, killed all your motivation. No, I mean, yeah, but I also <laughs> I, I have a pretty big chip on internal chip on my shoulder. That's a that definitely fuels a good fire. So 100 percent. I was on a sales call with you like a few weeks ago and you were in a tent somewhere like camping or uh, hiking or whatever you're doing oh uh, yeah yeah that was october we were in uh i was living out of my van in yosemite <laughs> so um i was actually uh my dad told me my, uh, that's another thing my dad told me he's like when i went to, went into college he goes he goes you're gonna have to work in an office pay your dues like then maybe <laughs> you may not have to be in the office every day but it might take 20 years and i go dad i will never ever work in an office this is it's 2015 like yeah I will never work in an office <laughs> like what last come COVID he goes to me. He's like, you were so right. Like I'm never <laughs> going back to an office. I love working remote. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I think he cracked the code to parenting. Like for any parents listening, just doubt your children and be very vocal about it. And then they're going to go on and do great things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, but yeah, we were in Yosemite. I was, I was basically working. God, like 6.30 a.m. till about 3.34 every day. And then I was climbing from about 4.30 onward till dark, really burning the uh, the candlestick on both ends, so to speak. Well, and I mean, for those who don't aren't familiar with Mount Whitney, because I definitely wasn't, like this was not a, you know, six or eight hour hike up and down a mountain. This was like a no. multi-day, like multi-level, like, level, like sleeping and outside and cooking and like all this stuff for how, how many days in total was the trip? It was five days total over about 42 miles um, oh, over passes. And mind you, I had never done a hike that long, able-bodied or disabled. Right. <laughs> so we were really in uncharted territory. And I really only had one 
reference point, uh, a man out of the UK by the name of Ed Jackson. He was my only reference point because he also has a spinal cord injury and, and does hikes and mountains and stuff. So it's basically two people in the entire world doing what him and I have done um, with our disabilities. So it was definitely a grind. You definitely, uh, you know, I, it took me, it took me a while to recover from it. I'm just glad that it's done because like our, for, for anyone that don't, that doesn't know, Mount Whitney stands at 14,505 feet, make, as Ben noted, making the tallest mountain in the lower 48. What a lot of people don't realize is to get up there, it's like, it's one of the longest continuous hikes in the US to get to 14,000 feet without technical skills. There's one route that's 22 miles round trip from summit to base or base to summit. And then there's other alternate alternative routes via the, the John Muir Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail. Because we weren't able to get permits for the main trail, that's what made our hike go from 22 miles to 42 miles, basically doubling it and doubling the time. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Why weren't you able to get permits? So Mount Whitney is also extremely popular and everyone wants to uh... hike it because it's like it's highest point in the U.S. you can go to without technical skills. Right. And so everyone and their mother wants to go climb the thing. And so they have a lottery system every March where only 3,000, I don't know, there's only a handful of people that get a lotto ticket every year. I mean, I guarantee my mother would not want to hike that. But, you know, I, I take your word for it. It's very popular. <laughs> yeah. It's and, very popular. I mean, glad you're still able to do it. Um, yeah. and, and it was, I mean, I definitely recommend anyone listening, go check out, uh, it's called Paralyzed to Peaks on, on YouTube. There's a whole video about um, Jack's journey and in particular is footage from the mountain and I loved how you're describing sort of what you were feeling on that like there were days where like you you went we were like just like stopped working and then yeah. I love when you describe you know when you were getting towards that finish line how you know despite you saying like I you know you know you won't be able to swim again and go for a run but you were saying like when you were I think you said raging <laughs> like that yeah. it felt like you were on that run like you had that high going on yeah yeah it was just like that day i think it was day three i was so so deep into a flow state right um yeah that it felt like i was floating for 12 miles of hiking like it was the most surreal thing and and flow states you can attain that via meditation you can attain that via physical activity you can even find it in your work life right um it's yep. just like where everything feels yeah it's it's where everything feels effortless and I've definitely learned to tap into that. Like, I, I don't know about you, Ben, but I, I get into like these flow states, even on, on work days where I can sit from like, I try to start really early because I like to do things later in the afternoon. So I'll start at like 7.30 sometimes and I won't move to like 10.30, like yeah. doing outbounding, prospecting, like communicating with teammates, et cetera. And then like, next thing you know, I'm like, oh, half the day has gone by, right? It's like that passage of time without even realizing it. I mean, and that's how you know you're you're doing the right job. Like, I think the the other way to define flow state is like when you are solving problems that you are, are perfectly capable to solve yourself. Like that's sort of the the idea, right? Because there's problems everywhere, but you know, certain problems are very stressful, and it's stressful when you don't know how to solve them or you don't have the capability or the knowledge. But with like a, within a flow state, you're doing an activity that's valuable and problem solving, but you have everything you need to do. You, you know everything you need to know, you have all the tools you need and you can just sort of sail through it. And yeah, like we should all be chasing jobs where where we find what our flow state is and that's different for everybody. It's right. definitely not outbounding for, for me, but <laughs> for, for, for me it might be writing or podcasting or, yeah. you know, making memes or whatever we're doing for for catalyst so which i know i know i tell you all it's i've commented quite a few times but man your memes i get a laugh every i get a laugh every single time there was that one this morning of i think it was something about people waving on zoom calls <laughs> yeah and you you know it never wants to be the one who's like because it's happened so many times where i'll wave and the other person doesn't and yeah. then they hang up i'm like oh well fuck you too <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's uh I, one i was reading the comment section i really like, so there's so many people like oh my oh, yeah. god like <laughs> what's wrong with you like oh this is a bad thing i'm like god, have a sense of humor guys come on i mean that's just i mean that's social media know. though yeah and, and i mean that's that's always been like i mean edward our, my ceo like gave, gave me one rule when i started he was like post whatever you want just don't do anything i'll have to apologize for 
And I'm like, yeah. I will do my best to stay within those guardrails. And <laughs> yeah. thus far, we've been okay. But I mean, we still get comments. If you're putting anything out there, there's going to be someone that doesn't like it. So, yeah. you know, that's how it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, all your stuff is, is generally quite positive and motivating. But have you ever encountered any, like, negative messaging around, like, any of the stuff you're putting out? You know... It would take a special kind of person to have a problem with it. But, you know, I'm just curious. There's a few people I wrote, like, no one cares about your trauma, right? Right. Um, there's another piece I wrote called death and dating. Like yesterday, you know, I was sitting in my apartment and I was like, like, I just have so many thoughts around triggers and stuff. Cause I'm nearing my three year anniversary, right. Of my injury. Right. And so a lot of stuff boils to the surface as things do around trauma anniversaries for people. I just wrote a long piece on, on trigger warnings and why I don't believe in them because it's for me, I felt that I feel that if I feel triggered by something, whether I'm viewing it or somebody says something, it means I have more self-development and healing to do. And therefore I shouldn't react negatively to it. It means I have to analyze and process it and then go back to the drawing board and assess, okay, why is this thing bothering me? I don't need to fix this. I need to adjust accordingly. So it doesn't bother me. And that means more self-development and more healing of that trauma or based off that situation. And so at least with, with like my writing and stuff, I always try to end it on a positive note. And I always, mm -hmm. always try to relate it back to the reader, right? When writing about touchy subjects, what matters is that you address the collective in the room and bring you and not just me into it, right? Because the moment yeah. you make it about yourself, then people can pile on you. But if you address the room, and recognize that to the point about we all have trauma, it, human human suffering is a collective, it's not unique, then it one, it loses its power, right, when we talk about it. Mm -hmm. And two, it allows other people to chime in and voice things that may be bothering them because it takes down the guardrails of, hey, we're all going through the suffering. It may look different for me and it may look different for you, but it's a collective. Therefore, let's talk about it. Let's not let's not just silo ourselves. And I think that's the big part of why community like moving into that portion is so important is I have so many friends that have gone through vastly different, you know, life circumstances and, and events that I have. And I think I brought it up earlier, like you just can't put any one experience on a pedestal because it's all a collective thing we're experiencing. Yeah. Like you, you'd never want one of your friends to, you know, not maybe they like went through a tough breakup or something like that. And you wouldn't want them to feel like they couldn't talk to you about it because them feeling like shit compared like that's not even on the same level as you know having a spinal cord injury so right. you know what i mean so it, it's um you know making it yeah an equal playing field like it's all relative it, to to also the trauma we've or the pain we've experienced previously in our lives like it might yeah. be the worst the worst pain i've felt to date might be like just a normal day for a lot of other people mm -hmm. and you know it's but i don't that that doesn't sort of compute with humans. We can only compare our own personal experiences. Right. It's all, everyone should be included. Let's not silo each other from the conversation. Right? Well, and that's, I mean, I, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I think that's one of the challenges. No, obviously there's a lot going on and people are very sensitive, but there's a lot of comparison of yeah. who has it worse. And right. you can talk about different groups or different situations and at the end of the day, like I, I had, you know, Leah Cheney on a couple of weeks ago, who's phenomenal. Uh, um, she's a CS leader. And, and we were talking about LGBTQ inclusion and all this kind of stuff. And and I was just saying, like, I, you know, we can't even talk about necessarily the suffering of the LGBTQ community as a as a whole, because, I mean, my personal experience involves pretty much none of that. Like I had this delightful, you know, very welcoming, loving upbringing, as did my partner. And that's sort of been all good. Whereas there are people who have severe trauma and PTSD because of what they were put through because of their situation. So it's sort of, it's very individual. It's not comparable. And, and it's a, a weird, I don't know, weird time right now. Is all I can uh, yeah, say. man, it's, it's, that's one of those topics you can just go on and on about, right? Uh, long story short, if we can all discuss those things openly and recognize that each situation is going to be different, but like recognize that and be like, Hey, I know what you're going through. I don't know what you're going through, but I'm here for you. That's what matters.
I want to get a little bit into what you're doing now work-wise. Like, how has this translated into... So, obviously, you're you're doing sales and, and partnerships at, at Saster. We had an incredible time at Saster la last, uh, last time, and we'll definitely be at the next one. So, definitely recommend it to anyone listening. Reach out to Jack. Um, Please. <laughs> get him that commission. But yeah. uh, first, you know, what is it that you love about what you're doing now? For me, I have access to one, an elite sales team of, and a, an amazing group of leaders um, and Puya and David and, and Clayton and Brian and then Jason and Amelia mainly, who I can tap into at any point in the day and I, I feel supported there. But two, um, for me, I, like there's nothing more satisfying than talking and learning from like a CEO or a CMO or that exec level or that VP level individual because I pride myself, Ben, on never being the smartest person in the room. Like, if I can be the dumbest person in the room, I'm so excited. Because yeah. I, I'm, I'm happy because then I get to shut the hell up and learn from these brilliant individuals. And that's like on a, that's a daily thing for me. And that means, like, that means I'm growing, right? The moment, the moment I feel like I know too much in the room, I'm in the wrong room as, as many, as the saying goes, right? I love it. Well, and it's and it's the idea of you know you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with and that sort of thing. So you should always be seeking out you know spending your time like thinking consciously who do you want to spend that time with. Exactly. Besides the team, it's I think because we're vendor agnostic, I get to talk to so many different individuals even in each category that it's like oh why are you doing it th this way rather than that way, right? And that's that's what gets me excited too because it just there's so many different ways you can solve a problem. And one way might be better for one company and one way it might be better for another company. Right. Is there anything that, I mean, obviously you bring, there's a lot that you bring to the role from your own personal sort of outlook. Like, is there anything specific that, you know, you feel like impacts how you work that comes from what you've experienced? For me, I think I did a presentation at Saster and the three key components I, I said when I got to like a million plus in sales in about five months was it was grit, consistency, and curiosity. And those tie back to my injury in that, um, well, you have to have grit to kind of survive what I did. Yep, 100%. <laughs> uh, you have to be consistent and obsessed with recovery, yeah. right? And then you have yeah. to be curious. You have to figure out okay, well, my body's not working in this way. How do we adapt it to do it in this way instead, right? How do I, right. basically, how do I adapt and overcome? And that's where the curiosity comes in. And so when I transitioned that into Saster, my my bread and butter, like when it comes to like working and like where I'm really good at is research and then pattern recognition and recognizing where industries and places are going. And so that's done me really well at Saster because SaaS in general is all about trends and like who's mm -hmm. doing what. And so being able to draw those patterns and then going to one person and be like, hey, I know so-and-so is doing this. I heard you doing this. What's appetite like for, you know, this specific strategy with content or for or for events, right? And so being able to blend that consistency, that curiosity, that grit into my sales role of managing all outbound sales at Saster. Uh, it's kind of, it's, it's a really well-made match and that's, I, I'm like, I know it's Q4, so everyone in sales is kind of <laughs> obsessed with their numbers and stuff, but like, <laughs> I wake up dreaming about like reply rates, you know, you're a marketer, right? So you, you think about like percentages and stuff. I think about like my percentage of reply rates, which is sitting at about yep. as of this morning, like 11.8%, which is really high. That's for very high for outbound cold, sales. For cold email. Yeah. Like I think about my percentage rates, I'm thinking about who's, you know, doing the shaking and moving in specific industries, whether it be, you know, customer success, like, like you guys with Catalyst or whether it be AI, like scale AI, like, and then like what subcategories, who's, who's trending, who's not like that just gets me, I get so, you can hear it in my voice. I just get so stoked and so excited about figuring those trends out yeah. and it, it just makes, it makes my job easy. It really does. I mean, what makes it easy is that, I mean, it, I, I imagine is it's, what you're excited about if you're doing what you're excited about it's going to come easy and you can clearly you know be very successful in it you can make great money and have that i was talking about this with a friend recently from a different company but we were talking about just flexibility around work hours or budgets or headcount or you know hours or anything like that and it's and 
you always want to be in that spot where like if you're doing if you're hitting all, all your numbers or surpassing all your numbers like you want to get to that point where they're not going to say anything to you you have just sort of complete freedom as long as you're delivering what you need to deliver <laughs> yeah. then you get that complete freedom and i i think that's i completely get that from you as well right like it's so important to you to be able to go and sleep in a van in yosemite <laughs> what you know what and and they're not going to stop you from doing that they're going to encourage that and as long as you're happy and you're delivering your numbers like you have all the freedom you need yeah i i i put life over work first i've always done i've made that when i started to get jobs and stuff i always prioritized what i love to do outside of work over my actual work because that ultimately leads to more productivity and more happiness yeah i prioritize climbing over over work sometimes like sometimes i'll just go and climb at three in the afternoon because i've hit all my metrics for the day and i have x amount of co like companies i'm talking to and I, what else am I going to do the rest of the day? Like, I'm going to go do what I want to do. And that's, I think finding that, creating that balance, having an environment to then encourage that balance is so important, especially in this day and age. Absolutely. And I, I want to end with, with the question I'm curious about, because obviously, you know, you've had very unique, you know, very, a very unique experience. It's something that hopefully, you know, no one listening has to go, has to go through, but Right. <laughs> you know, when you think about how this affected you and your outlook on life and, and sort of what you've learned, is there any particular, any one specific, I would say, message or piece of advice that you think you just wish that more people thought about and took to heart? Yeah, um, this is, I always say what the first thing that comes to mind when I get questions like this, the thing that comes up for me is, when presented with a situation, whether positive or negative, it's really about not thinking why me, it's about thinking why not me. That's that's the simple answer. Like when you're presented with a situation, it's why not go do the tallest mile in the lower 48? Why not go create something amazing, whether it be a startup or a book or a blog, right? Like why not me at the end of the day? And being able to shift that that frame of reference, that mindset towards the, the why not aspect, um, I think will allow any individual who's able to do that to really excel in the face of trying circumstances. Amazing, well said, and, and I don't think I could pick a better spot to end it on. So Jack, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your story. Where should uh, yeah. Where should people go if they want to keep following your stuff and engaging with what you're doing? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can look me up under Jack Ryan. My film is called Paralyzed to Peaks. So that's also my Instagram handle if you want to go follow that. I post some deep, deeper writing and some cool imagery there as I'm a photographer as well. And yeah, I think just definitely tune in the next year because we're, we're talking to a lot of brands and doing a lot of cool projects with other athletes. And uh, it's going to be, 2022 is going to be super exciting. That it will. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jack. Talk to you soon. Yeah, cheers, Ben. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Make sure to subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us, our email is community at getcatalyst.io.